1: Glad to be here in the garage with two experts on the John Binet Ramsey case and experts on the city of Boulder around the time of the murder as well. The, the gentlemen joining me today are brothers, the Zell brothers, Jim and Frank, and they've been looking at the John Ramsey case almost since day one. So they started looking at this case early 1997. One thing that I really enjoyed and I thought was a breath of fresh air when we first met for the first time, guys. You told me about something that you call the Boulder Syndrome. Could you explain again to me what that is and to our wonderful listeners what it is that you call the Boulder Syndrome?
0: Well, thanks for, for having us on, Nick. We appreciate the time. Thank you, Nick. Uh, the Boulder Syndrome, that's what our original theory morphed into. In January of 1997, we devised our own theory about the case. We called it the sex ring theory. We do not believe that John or Patsy Ramsey killed their child, but maybe were involved in something which put their daughter in harm's way and led to her death. That was our theory. And as we looked into Boulder, as the days went on, the weeks, the months, the years, we started finding out that there were all these cases and we were getting bits of information about things that not many people knew about and involving child sexual abuse so it for us it became bigger than the john benet ramsey case and we call it the boulder syndrome we use the word syndrome because in medical terminology what is a syndrome it is a series of symptoms that repeat over and over and that's what that's how we view Boulder that they have they have had a pedophile problem in that town for decades yeah so. it, it's always been painted Boulder as this perfect town but there is an, an extremely dark side to it uh, underneath the surface it's really dark
1: and that's what I found so amazing. Some of the cases that you guys pointed out to me, you know, we have Lawrence Schiller's book, and I think it's a fantastic book. It, it chronicles a lot of the events and the movements about this case early on Perfect Murder, Perfect Town, Jean Bonnet, and the City of Boulder. But as you guys quickly pointed out to me, not so fast there. Nick, this is not the perfect town and here's why. So let's let's take the listeners through some of the the child sex some of the the grosser more disturbing things that were going on in Boulder starting with the slusher case. The slusher
0: case, this was a case that started out early on in Hunter's uh career. So Hunter Alex Hunter the district attorney who uh At the time of the uh, Ramsey murder, he was elected into office around 1972. And this case happened in 1977. You had a man the name of Floyd David Slusher arrested in 1977 for um, molesting Boy Scouts. And we found out about this case when the, the Boy Scouts released their files about pedophiles who had worked for their organization. And we pretty much, when they did that, we pretty much guarantee that we will definitely find a bolder connection. And we found Floyd David Slusher. Uh, so he rested in 77. He was convicted on one count of sexual assault on a minor. And he was sentenced one day to life, which I had never heard of before. But and he served about 6 years. Now as we started digging in to the to Mr. Slusher, we found the the investigating officer's notes. This was an officer Dutro of the Colorado, of the uh, Sheriff's office, the Boulder County Sheriff's office. And the things he wrote about Slusher were incredible. For example, uh This is a quote from the handwritten notes of that 77 case. Dutro stated that he, quote, learned of many victims too numerous to interview. So right there, that gives you pause. What do you mean that they were too numerous to interview? You didn't interview everybody. There were so many you stopped. So that was problem number one. And uh, Dutro also stated that Slusher sexually approached every Boy Scout troop in Troop seventy-five and Troop seventy-three, and that Slusher chose victims outside of scouting as well. It is evident, however, that Slusher, through his sexual assaults, assaults on young boys, has affected many young lives. And the most distressing part of it was when Dutro stated parents of one of the victims may have been directly promoting a relationship between their son and the suspect. That is in what the old terminology that we use, two or more people involving, you know, that are involved in abusing a child is called a sex ring. That's what we always called it and still do. Today, you call it human trafficking. So this case ends up He's arrested for several counts and Hunter and his office plead him down to one count. Now, the parents of the other kids were outraged, but Hunter tried to calm them down by saying, look, if, if we charge them, if we if we do all eight, it's going to come out to the same sentence. And that was said to kind of keep the parents at bay. But what the parents didn't know about were the handwritten notes by officer Dutrell. Hunter didn't have to plead him out. He could have went back to Dutreau and interviewed the numerous amount of witnesses that they didn't interview. And you could have hit him with a slew of charges and kept him in prison for a much longer time. But that didn't happen. And that's, for us where it starts i'm sure there's cases before 77 but you're gonna see a a common theme with like everybody bashes the police department and we do too but the district attorney's office they're the ones who were really at fault in our opinion and and slushers um when he was initially arrested you know the the acts that he com- that he was accused of being committed at the time they they were atrocious horrible but yet you had many people come to his defense you had professors write letters to the judge you had lawyers uh, that were not representing him obviously but they were writing letters for him to to be lenient if not straight out released they wanted him released on bond if you could believe it uh this and and Slusher did this by the he did all this by the ripe old age of 24 years old.
1: Yeah, they usually start. They usually the statistics will tell us that they usually start at that late teens, early 20s age for this type of behavior, this these type of gross. Actions and crimes and and what we're seeing here is I think with the Slusher case, I look at that one and I go, well, th- this is showing me that either. These, these molestation cases, and I don't know the details of some of the the crimes that he committed, but the molestation cases, especially in the seventies, they were handled a lot differently back then than they are today. And, and so that, that could be a little bit, a sign of the times kind of thing, but I think you're right. What we're, what we're going to see with some of these cases is, is either a, some kind of disconnect where, where we're not, we're not convicting these people to the fullest extent of the law. And why, why are we not doing that? And 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 what's behind that? So let's move forward guys to, to 84. I believe it was 1984. The Sid Wells case. Uh, I believe it was
0: 1983, Nick. Uh, It it was the murder of uh, Sid Wells by the, the person arrested for the murder. His name was Thane Smica. And this is where you're going to hear how Alex Hunter handled. It wasn't just uh, the Ramsey grand jury that he was kind of messing around with. He he kind of screwed with the uh, Sid Wells grand jury and made deals. And just to touch on, because we're going to actually get to that, maybe touch on it with this case as well, when you said that, in the 70s, they handled cases different. In Boulder, it never changed. Right. From the 70s to the 80s to the 90s, and after, they were ex- that district attorney's office, that's all they did was make crazy plea bargains in pedophile cases. And we'll touch on that. But uh as for Dane Smiker, Sid Wells was—he uh, brought Thane in as a roommate to help pay the rent. Uh, Thane was usually uh, late with the rent, which Sid Wells complained about. And Thane was a bit of a, a drug user, also a drug dealer. And the brother of Sid Wells went camping came home one day and found his brother uh, shot in the back of the head with a shotgun. So that's, and, and Thane Smyka isn't there. He had left a note on the table stating that he was elsewhere, wouldn't be back till a certain time. That was his kind of his alibi. Look, it was his shotgun. (laughs) He left the note on top of the blood. So he was arrested but hunter did something very very strange he made a he made a deal he had a grand jury formed to investigate the case and it was just he 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 made a deal that was so strange that the detectives working on the case weren't aware of it and after it was over they actually looked into seeing if alex hunter Committed illegal acts by doing this. He worked. Hunter and Smica's attorneys agreed in writing that the grand jury convened to investigate the case would not indict Smica. That was the deal Hunter made with Smica's attorney. And they also agreed that Smica's mother and sister would not be called as, as witnesses. Why? Because Smica's own mother said he did the murder. So what happens? They make that deal, and in exchange, Smiker's attorney allows Smyker to remain in police custody, even though no charges are formally filed against him. Now, they only have so much time to hold him, then they release him, he sticks around Boulder for a period of time, and then he disappears. And to this day, they're still looking for him. That's how Alex Hunter handled that case.
1: Let's push forward and go to the Downsboro case.
0: Bruce Downsboro uh, was working for the University of Tennessee when he was uh, arrested in 2013. And he was caught up in this worldwide investigation and it was called Project Spade. And this this Project Spade was, uh, they were investigating a Canadian film company called Azov Films. And this, this uh, as of films, they were, inter- they were into uh, child torture pornography. So Bruce Downsborough was caught up in this. He was arrested. And there were some other people arrested in this. Uh, U.S. Senator Lamar Alexander's chief of staff, his name was Jesse Ryan Larskin. He was also arrested, and, but he wound up committing suicide. Uh, there were about 350 people in total that were arrested in this investigation. Uh, and then going back to Downsboro, he had about twenty thousand images um, that were on his computer, and this is some of the most brutal stuff—the uh, the, the abuse and torture of toddlers—you know, re- really horrific uh, material. Downsboro, this is where it, he was arrested in Tennessee, but there is a tie-in; it goes back to Boulder, Colorado, you know, and Downsboro was arrested in Boulder, Colorado, in nineteen eighty-six. Well, Jim, I, I'm sorry if I, I I don't mean to jump over you. Sure, go ahead. You know, in the 80s, Bruce Downsborough lived, you know, in Boulder and in the surrounding area, and he worked at the College of Boulder in the grants department. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Jim. Continue. Sorry about no, that. No, that's true. Yeah. He lived there, and, and, and he was a lawyer, um, mm-hmm. and he molested two boys, and he pleaded guilty to sexual assault on a child and sexual assault on the third degree. Obviously, you know, the common pattern, no jail time has ever given in these cases. Uh, In the first case, he received a deferment. And in the second case, he received, I I think it was two years probation. And he also mentioned to Tennessee investigators that he also molested other children as well. But that was never, never really pursued. Yeah, his words were he got away with it. Yeah, he got away with it. That's right. So, uh, And what's interesting about this is John Ramsey's Access Graphics was the uh, subsidiary of Lockheed Martin. And in the 90s, Lockheed Martin was the United States' number one defense contractor. Going back to 1986, the number one defense contractor was HRB Singer. And the president of that company in 1986 was George Downsborough, Bruce's father. You're going to see a pattern the more we share stories of, you know, you're going to see Lawyers, city officials, people of prominence, police caught up in deviant activity. So that's a that's the, the Downsboro in a nutshell.
1: And then uh, and, I mean, these cases are already very disturbing, but one that really takes the disturbing cake is the Ballard case.
0: The Ballard case is known to be the most horrific sex abuse case in Colorado history. You had um, Mike Ballard and Patricia Ballard uh, with their friends, uh, Dennis Dunham and his wife, and they were abusing um, the Ballard kids. And I believe there was five of them. Seven, seven kids. Seven, seven kids. And they, they were it was torture, sexual abuse, incest—you name it. These kids were going through it, and they had a—they kind of had a system going where they would abuse in one town, and when DHS came and got wise, they would move to another town and continue the abuse. And they would get visited, and the kids would have all types of—you um, know—damage to their bodies, cigarette burns, bite marks. But they were never taken out of the home. They were never taken away from them. They were even brought before a judge with a broken limbs, and they were still sent back to the Ballard's. So this went on from a, for a period of, you know, years. Uh, they were eventually arrested in '93 when finally they took the the children out of the home and placed them in a foster home, and. When they felt comfortable enough, they told the Foster parents what was going on, and that's how the arrests were finally made. After the kids disclosed the horrific abuse that they were experiencing at the hands of the Ballards and and the Dunnans, but it kind of it kind of expands though. It's not just the Ballards and the Dunnans because when we received the affidavits for this case, when you read um, the police reports, it says that the children were being pimped out in the neighborhoods, to other adults, neighbors, to everyone. And what's interesting is that there were no other arrests made. It was just strictly the Dunnans and the Ballards, all these other people that these kids said that they were abused by, neighbors, you think they'd be easily approached and questioned, but this never took place.
1: And some of these other persons were named. It wasn't just a neighbor or somebody from Boulder, some of these persons were named in the affidavit. There were no other people
0: named in the affidavit. They, they said that there were strangers. They said, neighbors, other kids, uh, other children. The thing is, is that they just focused on the four and that was it. Right. Even though the, the kids talked about being taken to other places made to have, you know, br- you know, brutally raped in front of many adults. Other children were there. They, you know, nobody looked into it. You know, this case had the largest task force at the time in Colorado history. You had multiple, you had Longmont, Lafayette, Boulder, social services, mental health. It was this huge task force. But yet, they only focused on the four, and they were these people were also picture takers. So they took pictures and possibly film. So how they did not look for other people, we we can't find it. We can't find any paperwork on the task force, even though it was the largest one in the state's history. We can't find anything. It was it was the jail sentence that was truly amazing just on the incest alone you could have locked these people up for life right never mind the torture you know the pimping out to you know the other you know having them pimped out to other people i think ballard i think uh michael ballard was given 10 years i think his wife was i think she served five uh, what was Dennis Dunnan's wife's name, Jim? I forgot that one. That that name escapes me, but she got yeah. off scot-free. Yeah, she didn't do a day in jail. And Dennis Dunnan got life. Yeah, and so I, God, think ba- I think Ballard did eight and a half. Yeah, he did a, a eight and a half, maybe. So, But Dennis Dunnan got life. Because, once again, the Boulder County the district attorney's office pled these people down. This was such a disgusting plea that there were attorneys involved in this case that left the district attorney's office. They just didn't leave the district attorney's office. They stopped being attorneys because they were so disgusted on what happened. Everybody complained about the pleas. The kids complained about it. Social workers complained about it, but yet they did it anyway. And Nick, I, I was able to reach out to somebody that was very close to that case that uh, was uh, knew what was going on uh, in the DA's office at that mm-hmm. time and also was uh, you know close to the kids as well. And this person relayed to me that this case was a hot potato at the DA's office. Nobody wanted to handle it. Right. And she's and this person said that the, the the children were treated in a hostile manner by the D.A.'s office. The kids were very uncomfortable and they were treated poorly. And and, and this person did not understand why, 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 why they were handling them. They, they were getting threats in a sense, like some kids were in the hospital and they were threatening the kids by saying, if you don't come to the D.A.'s office. We're not going to press charges. Stuff like that. Very bizarre how they handled this case. And eventually my brother and I were able to track down one of the uh, child victims in the case. Lived out in the Midwest. Um, I I was able to talk with him on the phone briefly Mm -hmm. because he kind of was caught off guard. Um, But when I mentioned the case to him. After his initial shock of kind of being brought back up, he settled down and he said that he had a fear of police officers in the, in this case. I said, well, why do you have a, a fear of police officers? And he said this, he goes, they were orchestrating the abuse. That's how he said it to me. And I said, where? He said, Older Longmont. And I said, okay. So at, at one point I was able, I, I took a reporter, me and a reporter, I went out from from okay. from Maine. Jim, and who, who who told us to go out to the Midwest to interview him? He did. No, no. Who 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 told us to do it? You cannot, do you remember? Ah. Ali great we told Ali greatest information about what one of the Ballard what what the Ballard kid had said to my brother right and Ali was like you need you know because of his health issues at the time he couldn't travel so he begged us to do it he he found it to be that important yeah so once i got out there with the reporter i had conversations with with the Ballard uh kid and he said he was going to show but eventually he he backed out so it was kind of a, a failed trip on the sense that he 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 wouldn't show up to to speak further on it. When he mentioned the police orchestrating the abuse, that's what I really wanted to dig deep into. But when you look at the affidavit and you start reading through uh the police narrative, one of the girls mentions at one of these get togethers. Where they're being abused and they're being and they're being sexually abused, she said. Oh well, I thought we were going to get money for it, but I, I I never received any. And then she said there was a policeman there, and I re- told him that I'm being abused here. And it says in the affidavit when she told this quote unquote policeman that the policeman and Mike Ballard laughed together. That says that right in the affidavit. <laughs> I was just reading it today. In a matter of fact. Welcome oh, to Boulder County. That there, The girl said that she reported it to a policeman who was there, and the policeman and Mike Ballard laughed. And there's also in the affidavits uh, police officers going to the, the home at different times during the day, you know, showing up in uniform. Now, when, we're not saying that the entire Boulder Police Department was involved or Longmont. But all it takes is one or two and it's a, you know, these are disturbing allegations that were made and it's no wonder Ali Gray wanted us to go out there and try to get more information. And unfortunately the kid didn't, you know, he got nervous and didn't show, but he had said enough to my brother on the phone.
1: Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, Never Frozen meals are dietitian approved Head to Factormeals.com slash True Crime Garage 50 and use code True Crime Garage 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code True crime Garage 50 at Factormeals.com slash True Crime Garage 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. The Zell brothers are investigating Boulder, the time period leading up to the John JonBenet Ramsey murder case, and even the city afterward. If anyone has any tips, they're looking for information in all the cases that we've just discussed, as well as anything that was going on that was not on the up and up in Boulder in the 1990s and after. And if anybody has information or would like to speak with one of the Zell brothers or both, please use this email address, jbrtips at gmail.com. Once again, that's jbrtips at gmail.com. What we are seeing here time and time again, and what these cases point out is a flawed history of the town of Boulder and the persons that are supposed to be responsible for investigating horrific crimes. And a lot of the crimes we just talked about, crimes against children. And you're seeing repeatedly. Failed investigations, failed follow-ups, a failure to convict these individuals to the fullest extent of the law. They are soft on crime in Boulder, and they are soft on crimes against children in Boulder at this time period. And
0: and that's that's what we call, that's the Boulder syndrome. This is what we're talking about. This repeats over and over for decades throughout the you know, Alex Hunter's tenure. We've spoken to people. We've spoken to former detectives who worked at the Boulder Police Department. And you now everybody says the same thing. The plea bargains were out of control. Everybody says it. And one thing we didn't mention with the ballot case, my brother talked about the judge that the kids were brought before and, and the, the judge refused to take them out of the home. That judge, his name was Judge Bellapani that name may not sound familiar to people who follow the Ramsey case but he was the judge who was put in charge of the grand jury in the Ramsey case and during the grand jury process he recused himself and left the country went to Egypt he did this out of nowhere he just came out you know he i think he sat the grand jurors and then all of a sudden said i quit I'm going to Egypt to teach law, so there's the connection between the Ballard case and the Ramsey case with that one.
1: Well, and to to kind of fill in the listeners here a little bit, if the, if anybody's out there shaking their heads, going, "I don't know," this seems like a lot to to believe. Anybody that's read John Binet Inside the Ramsey Murder Investigation by Steve Thomas, who who was the detective and one time lead on the case, the. The very beginning of his book, he he's a police officer. He's a detective working for Boulder, for the city of Boulder, and he spends the beginning of his book talking about how outrageous and how plea deal deals were a common theme in the county courts out there in Boulder, leading up to this, leading up to the murder of Jean Benet.
0: And I think uh, Stephen Singular, the author who wrote Presumed Guilty. Uh, Actually, there's a part in the book where he's interviewing Detective uh, Wickman.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And Wickman hints to something and says, you know, I had, I was looking to arrest a city councilman, but I, I don't have the book in front of me, but to paraphrase, you know, I was told to back down. That's what you're dealing with in Boulder. So when you start building these cases up, is it really any wonder why this case isn't solved? And it gets worse. I mean the Ballot case is, is really horrific, but these cases keep on going.
1: One, for example, is the Jerry Berry case, right? That's a child pornography case.
0: Oh, absolutely. Jerry Berry. This is this is one of my favorites.
1: And he he lived relatively close to the Ramseys, correct?
0: Uh well he didn't he didn't uh live really close, okay. but he he worked as the treasurer for First Baptist Church, okay, which was pretty much down the block and across the street from St. John's Episcopal, the Ramsey Church, mm-hmm. which is uh, you know which is minutes away from the Ramsey home. But uh, yeah, Jerry Berry. So he's he's the treasurer for First Baptist Church. He's arrested, and this was I want to say nineteen ninety nine. So First Baptist used to have a program where they helped families that were down on their luck. And a woman shows up with, you know, with three kids, three, three girls. And of course, they're going to help them out. Jerry Berry is going to take a personal interest in them. So he starts to uh, take the kids to his house with the mother's permission and eventually what happens is is that he starts taking pictures of them in different states of undress now these these girls were i think 4 5 and 7 and strangely enough they had a brother and the brother from the town they came from which escapes me at the moment the brother was in jail for molesting his sisters that's right <laughs> I about so the- these girls already went through the ringer with their brother. Now the mother takes him to first Baptist church. They're going to get help. And they, Jerry Berry is the one that's going to help him. And he, like I said, he starts taking pictures of them in different state, you know, topless. He shows the pictures to the mother. She's fine with it. So what does that tell you? The mother's okay with what he's doing. And then, you know, the molestation starts in the bathtub. Well, I'm not going to go when the kids were so young, I'm not really going to go into it. Right. So then they make an arrest. They arrest them. Uh, they take out filmmaking equipment from his house uh, cameras. That's how he, that's how he even got arrested was he brought film to be developed. And the person developing the film back in 1999 saw what was on the camera and called the cops. And that's how they arrested him. So they got him dead to rights. Then we're told he he actually has a prior in another state for the same thing. They surmise that he is also a child uh, pornographer. And that's coming because I wound up getting in touch with uh, one of the officers directly involved in the case itself. And that question I posed directly to the officer. I said, "Was he involved in child pornography?" And they said, "Yes, we believe he was a child pornographer in the area. That's what he was doing for
1: his own use or for to 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 sell sell or trade for apparent apparently
0: both personal and and to sell because they brought in the postal service to track where this where the pornography was going and to who. And that's when the investigation got shut down. Plea bargain, of course. And the the officer I was talking with when I when I mentioned you know what what the thoughts were when the plea bargain came down, this officer said, "I literally fell off my chair." It's a quote. <laughs> I mean, how could you not be shocked? And and, and that person that worked uh, on that case wound up leaving. <laughs> I would, I would too. She, uh, yeah. I think she went to the West coast, but uh, yeah, uh, another plea bargain.
1: When you have the, and as the, the district attorney, you have the photographs and you've traced and tracked photographs and in child pornography that was sent through the U S mail. And yet you're still, there's at that point, there's no reason for a plea bargain. You have the, the, you have the evidence to show the jury, look how the disgusting this person is the laws that he's breaking He's not fit to live in our society. He belongs behind bars. You're not. You you wouldn't find a jury that wouldn't convict that guy. And yet you're you're letting him get a plea bargain. Yeah, it, it gets
0: more interesting once the plea bargain is handed down. Jerry Berry breaks parole. Well, wait, wait, wait. First, whoa, oh, whoa. Before, before before you get to the parole. Yeah. To to get to Nick's point that he just made, what I think happened is that they didn't want to know where who else had the pornography? Mm-hmm. That's why they That's shut why the it case down. out, pled the case out. But here's the thing. Now, remember, this is 1999. This isn't 1977. This isn't slusher times. This is 1999. This is nearly three years after the murder of John Benet Ramsey. You figure you want to make an example out of these people, right? Yep. You figure the town has learned its lesson. That they're going to be, they're going to get to be hard on, on pedophiles. They plead them out to house arrest, no jail time, lifetime probation.
1: So we're going to your sentence is to be sent and confined to the place that you were commit f- committing a lot of these crimes.
0: Um, yeah, yeah, and, and obviously no con no contact with children, a lifetime, you know, probation. You know, you you can you know. That's it. You're you're on the hook now. You know you got to watch your steps. So he breaks parole. He breaks it. He 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 breaks the uh, the probation. So for for sure they send him to jail. No, he doesn't go to jail. Then he breaks uh, the probation a second time. Now that's that's the one for sure. They're going to send him to the slammer. Nope, doesn't happen. A third time. Nope, doesn't happen. Four times. It took. Now it starts to get to the point where, and this is what Ollie Gray always told me about the Ramsey case. He's like, You want to get to the bottom of, of what happened? Figure out who knew who. That's how this case is gonna get solved. And and you get people to talk, and that's how that's how you do it. He would tell me that every almost every time we talked. Why did why was Jerry Berry In 1999, given, especially in a short span after the murder of John JonBenet Ramsey, given that kind of treatment, who was he giving pornography to? Who was he selling to? Was that what they were afraid of, that he knew names? This guy was wealthy. He owned 14 cars. No license, though. And he owned a company called Berry Enterprises, which was obviously a front company that nobody could figure out. Even uh, Lou Smith couldn't figure out what that company was doing. How, we have an idea, but nobody could pin it down and have actual proof of what that company really did.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, so that's the Berry
1: case. Let's expand on your guys's knowledge, and you did a little look into the background of Alex Hunter, who as we just discussed, was the person in charge and and could have put a lot of these terrible people away for a very, very long time and maybe, you know, uh, was a little relaxed in that effort. But tell us a little bit more about the background of Alex Hunter, the district attorney. Oh,
0: I think I said it earlier. He came into office in 1972. He I I guess he thought he was a, a, a real estate mogul back then. Because he he was into real estate, making a bunch of deals with with his law partner at the time, who was also involved in those land deals, uh, Bill Wise. And the deals went south. And he was pretty much bankrupted. He owed creditors, I think, uh, let's see, he filed for bankruptcy in 74, 28 secured creditors, another dozen unsecured creditors. And I think he owed him $6 million. This is your district attorney. And this is when he first starts. That's that's the beginning of Alex Hunter. And he, he initially ran on a hard line against crime when he first started. And the uh, defense attorney's, in the area complained that their workload was too much. So they ended it. And that's when the plea bargain, uh, train got rolling and never stopped. You know, he's been, he's been married four times. Uh, I, I, that's pretty much it for Alex Hunter for his basic background.
1: A a person to be in that position and to be that much in debt is an obvious it's very easy to go from that to being compromised. Number one, and then number two here with with Alex Hunter, it's he he's in office till what, t- t- roughly two thousand two thousand uh, one. Up, yeah,
0: he, he 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 retired. Yeah, I think he stepped down in two thousand. That's a long time at, to be in office. It's like your own little kingdom yeah you know it's he spent 28 years in office and he was he always uh ran unopposed but what brought him down was the ramsey case
1: well and you're gonna have somebody out there that's gonna say but nick you know you're saying he's letting these 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 sickos plea out to Shorter sentences, maybe no jail time, but but he ran on a platform on being tough on crime. Well, my response to that would be if you if that's your argument, look, nobody's ever won an election by announcing that they're going to be soft on crime. So it's just it's just part of the uh, packaging for uh, getting that job. As far as I'm concerned, yeah, it's so,
0: part of the political world.
1: That's right. Now, what what I thought was so much fun, I, I had talked to you guys a handful of times and in, very much enjoyed our conversations. And then I sat down and I read Stephen Singular's very good book, Presumed Guilty, and I had no clue that this was going to happen. At some point, he starts talking about you guys. <laughs> and he and he, he referred to it as the Zell Brothers probe, the Zell Brothers investigation into the JonBenet Ramsey case. And so... Talk about what it is that you guys set out to do in 1997, and maybe some of the more famous individuals or people that were are very close to this case that you met and interacted with along the
0: way. Well, as I had mentioned earlier in 19 in 1997, so we, I mean, we literally got involved in this case almost from the beginning. Uh, I think we started looking into it. Jim, what, about three days after? Uh, it was right away. Yeah, the 29th of 96. And I don't know if you want us to mention how we got going on our... I I guess we can mention it, uh, if we can do it quick. Yeah. So 1996, we start looking into it, and... You know, to us, it it just, it just, the whole thing looked off. And that's when I called my brother and I said, Jim, you know, maybe we should just take a look around the town, you know, see if this is in our uh, wheelhouse. And it didn't take long, just a couple of days. And my brother will tell you the, the phone call that set us off on a 27 year journey.
1: Well, before we get into 27 years, originally you thought you would solve this in how long?
0: Oh, well, I originally told my brother, I said, Jim, this, this won't take long, probably a year. <laughs> <Off the mark. laughs> Miss, missed it by that much.
1: <laughs> Beautiful. But it wasn't for a lack of trying, right? Yes, yes. Uh-oh, Uh-oh. Know. No. No. <laughs> so tell us about the phone call.
0: You know, you're talking about the early days of the internet, right? So where do you really go to get your information about a town? You know, you, you always go to the library. You know, that that, that was your resource. That's where the history of a town is. It's a town's memory is it, the library. The people that work at the library know the people of the town. So that's who I called. I called the uh, Boulder Library and I asked to speak to someone uh, and they put on put me on. I don't know if it was the head librarian. It was just a librarian. And I asked her a very simple question. I said, I'm calling in regards to this case of this little girl. I said, is this the first time that's ever happened, or I mean is this usual oh what what happens here and you know can you give me you know what do you think happened and she said, well, and this is what she said, things happen to our kids here in Boulder that we don't like to talk about and then she said, to be honest with you, I'm a little uncomfortable talking with you on the phone about it, so I'm gonna go and then I said, hmm, I said, okay, things happen like Things happen to our kids here that we don't like to talk about.
1: That almost sounds like the, from right out of the, the novel, Stephen King's it, right? Yeah. So something yeah. going on here, uh, with the kids and they're, they're, they're getting pulled and vanishing off the streets. And, but, but we're so unsettled with everything that we're not, we don't even discuss it.
0: Yeah. So that's when I called my brother. I say, hey, Frank, uh, you know, I, I think we need to look at this a little further. Yeah. And then I found a mechanic who didn't go that far, but talked about rumors of things happening to kids. And then we were kind of off and running. And we formed our theory of the case probably midway through January 1997. And we called it the sex ring case. And as I said earlier, we do not believe that John and Patsy Ramsey killed their daughter. Not at all. We believe that they may have been involved in something that led to their daughter being killed, and then for whatever reason, helped cover it up. That was our theory. And we had certain goals that we wanted to, I shouldn't call them goals, we thought if our our theory was going to be correct, that certain things were going to happen, and We've Me and my brother have worked other cases over the years. And when you start to predict the future of the case or things that happen in the case and you're predicting it ahead of time, you're usually on the right track. Mm-hmm. So we said, okay, sex ring theory. You know, Were there sex rings in the town? We found that out relatively quickly that there were sex rings operating in Boulder in the Ramsey case we would have to find someone who would come forward and accuse either John Patsy or someone close to them of child sexual abuse so we started digging in Boulder now meanwhile while we're looking for that witness and we have a and we had a plan or I had a plan for sure that if we found the witness that would make that claim at the time, I had a, a place that they could stay. We'd get them out of Boulder. I'd get them on the East Coast, put them up. That way they'd have no worries. Hire private investigators to investigate their claims and then get a reporter to write an article on what the private investigators could prove and hence put pressure on the Boulder Police Department. That was the goal, to find the witness. And then, lo and behold... A witness comes forward, but just not as we thought it would be, which would be locally in in, in Boulder. This witness came from California, and she came forward. She was under um, therapeutic care. She was, uh, and and the therapist she was seeing said, "Yes, you know what she's saying is is, is valid, because her claim that she was uh, abused in California." Right. What reminded her, she when, when she heard about the John Bonnet case, she was like, hey, not only was she abused the way I was abused, but there are players that are involved with her that were involved in my abuse.
1: Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Make sure you join me back here in the garage for part two with the Zell Brothers. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't win